What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 357. It's titled, Is a Housing Crash Coming? Earlier this year, LaPrell and I drove from Palm Springs back to our home in Tucson. We took a route that went by the Salton Sea, one of the largest lakes in California. It's over 300 square miles. The water is tranquil. The lake is surrounded by white beaches. This lake is sometimes called the Accidental Lake. It was formed in 1905 when the Colorado River breached a canal and then for two years water poured into this desert basin. In the 1950s, the lake became a thriving tourist destination. Frank Sinatra visited it. There were marinas. Houses were built. But in the 1970s, a series of storms destroyed many of the houses and resorts. Then the drought hit, and the water in the lake began drying up. Migrating birds used to stop. But as the lake shrunk, the fish population died, and the number of bird species has dropped 25% in the last 5 to 10 years. The town that we stopped in that was really, really fascinating was Bombay Beach. There's only about 250 residents that call Bombay Beach home. Back in 2015, three artists started an annual art, music, and philosophy festival in the town. One weekend each year. And the date is always changing. They don't advertise it. They don't sell tickets. Word of mouth. And it turned this town into sort of a really cool public art exhibit. Fascinating combination of art and decay. Mark Hegdorn said the town was dying. They're bringing in young people, fixing places up. It's a shot in the arm, said Ernest Hawkins. This place used to rock. Then it went to sleep. Everyone left or got old. I looked on Zillow to see what one could purchase a property in Bombay Beach. You can buy a lot for about $4,500. I saw one manufactured house. It sold in 2019 for $32,000, about $25 a square foot. Now Zillow estimates it's worth about $52,000 or $43 a square foot. Bombay Beach has got to be some of the cheapest real estate in California, which emphasizes the point that real estate is very much local. Similar to when you look at a stock, there's what's known as systematic risk and non-systematic risk. Non-systematic risk is very specific to the company or to a neighborhood, whereas systematic risk is inherent to the entire market. In today's episode, we're going to look at some of the systematic drivers of real estate prices. It's been an amazing 18 months. In the last year, 
U.S. home prices, as measured by the S&P Case-Shiller Index, have risen 18.5%. That is significantly above the long-term home price appreciation. That index, if we go back to 1953, has increased on average on a real basis, so net of inflation, about 0.8% per year. Here we are up close to 20% in one year. Now, the index has shown some volatility. It fell 18% in 2009. But still, something happened to drive this jump in home prices. Now, while we'll share some U.S. data, there are similar drivers in other countries. And we want to look at, is this sustainable? Or will we get a 20% drop in real estate prices, a housing crash? The ultimate driver of home prices is demand and supply. What has occurred in the U.S. and occurs in other countries is population grows. More households are formed. The U.S. had 111 million households in 2010. Last year, the number of households was 126 million. And the U.S. is expected to have an additional 2 million households in 2021. Children grow up and they want to separate from their parents and they form new households. Immigration can also impact that. That means in order to just sustain current prices to meet demand, there, there would need to be 2 million additional homes created in 2021. And the reality is builders are not building that many houses. It's estimated that this year there'll be 1.5 million new homes and apartments created and another 115,000 or so mobile homes. But there's also 300,000 dwelling units that will be scrapped, destroyed. So the total supply is only increasing about 1.3 million homes. But there's 2 million new households created. That's why there's a shortage of houses, which we'll get to. But thinking about demand, there is demand because more households are formed. What's been unusual about the past year is more individuals have been willing to buy because interest rates fell to all-time lows. Mortgage rates were at all-time low. And households had cash for down payments. Due to the pandemic, they weren't spending as much on experiences and things like they were previously. The savings rate skyrocketed, partially because of huge stimulus payments. The money supply in the U.S. increased 20% over the past year or so. And so households, potential home buyers, had cash. Mortgage rates were low. The pandemic forced them to think about where they're living. Did they want a different circumstance? And then there was the fear of missing out. All those things combined, and there was essentially a demand shock, a desire to purchase a house, a willingness to pay more, and the ability to pay more. If we look at debt service for mortgage payments as a percent of disposable income, they reached an all-time low last year. Houses have never been more affordable just based on the debt service cost. If we look at other affordability measures, this is by Ned Davis Research, they look at a median income family buying a median-priced house a median-priced house in the U.S. is about $326,000. And if they get a 30-year mortgage, 
put 20% down, they use those metrics to create a home affordability index. Just based on that measures, the cheapest of all time, going back to the early 80s for this house affordability index was in 2013 when rates were down and home prices were down. Now home prices are much higher, but affordability now, while it's down over 20% in the past year because house prices have increased 20%, the affordability based on that measure is still much greater than it was back in 2005, 2006, really any time from the early 80s to the mid 2000s. Houses then were not as affordable as they are today. If we look at U.S. household mortgage debt as a percent of the economy, as measured by GDP, it's about 55%. The highest was back in 2009 at about 75%. And so there's less mortgage debt than there was. And there's the ability to service that debt is higher. So if we look at the demand side of what has driven the rising housing prices, we have ongoing demand due to household formations. We have really a windfall from government stimulus, although that is waning. And we've seen some cooling off of demand. It's, it just, it's not sustainable at the rate it was. But there was that pent-up demand due to the, to the pandemic. And then people went out and bought houses. Total home sales through the end of July were up 17.5% over the trailing 12-month period. Existing home sales were up 23%. That year ending July, new home sales were actually down about 14%. That's partially due to builders holding back on building because lumber prices jumped so high. And they wanted to wait until lumber prices fell, and they have fallen. If we look at the turnover just in the existing home stock, up 23% over the past year. Let's take a look at the supply side of the situation. I mentioned there will be 2 million new households formed in the U.S. in 2021. Yet the number of new homes built will only be about 1.5 million. Freddie Mac estimates that there is a shortfall of 3.8 million housing units. There's a deficit of housing units. There's not enough housing, and that definitely puts upward pressure on prices. One way we can look at that, that shortage, is what's known as the housing inventory to sales ratio. How many months' houses are there available? There's always turnover. People are always moving. But what is the inventory relative to sales? It's close to an all-time low at about three months' supply. Typically, a balanced housing market will have a six-month supply of homes. A stressed market, like we saw in 2008, 2009, 2010, had close to 10 to 11-month supply of houses. So very constrained supply, a 3.5 million shortage. If we look at existing single-family homes, the month's supply is only about 2.6 months. Whereas new homes, that inventory has increased a little bit. It's up to to six months now. There's a correlation between the supply and the increase in the median price of the house. As there is more supply, as you would expect, housing prices don't increase as much. But when the supply is constrained, like we see now, 
then you can get upwards of 20% increase in the median home price. And that's a very consistent pattern. And we're in a phase now where there's just not enough houses and it's pushing up prices. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. The Pearl and I recently had dinner with some friends who run a retail business. They have multiple stores and an online shop. And they recently used Shopify to better manage their inventory so they could ship online orders out of all of their stores instead of the warehouse. It helped them get a higher conversion rate on their website because of Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launcher online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the, did we just hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers, just like it did for our friends. With the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com david, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com david now to grow your business, no matter what state you're in. Shopify.com slash David. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in my profession, I've seen how important it is to get quality candidates to interview. And LinkedIn can help you with that. It's not just a job board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. So hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash David. That's linkedin.com slash David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Now, there are some things that potentially will impact supply. During this pandemic, there's been mortgage forbearance. Individuals, households could stop paying their mortgage and banks could not foreclose on them. The mortgage delinquency rate got over 6% in the early months of the pandemic. The all-time high delinquency rate was back in 2010, where it got close to 10%. Now that mortgage delinquency rate is down, about 2.2% of mortgages are 60 or more days past due. That mortgage forbearance program is ending. At the height of the pandemic, there were 7.2 million homeowners participating in the U.S.'s mortgage forbearance program. Now it's, it's down to 1.7 million that continue to not make their mortgage payment. Most of those, because of this huge increase in the price of homes over the past year, are not underwater. If they're not able to meet their mortgage payment, they will 
not likely let the bank foreclose. They'll sell and move somewhere else. But that potential where we see, for example, on Realtor.com, there's about 600,000 homes for sale. If just a small percentage of the 1.7 million that still are not able to make their mortgage payment decide to sell, that will increase the supply of homes and can put some downward pressure on prices. But it's unlikely to lead to a housing crash because for that, we need much more supply. We need builders to build many, many more houses. And the reality is builders are much more conservative than they were during the housing bubble. Back then, they were building more than 2 million houses a year, and then it dropped off to 500,000 or so in 2008, 2009. It took really until 2015 to get back over a million homes built per year. So there has been an ongoing shortage of housing. Now, it obviously depends on the region, the city, the locale, but nationally, there is definitely a shortage of homes. But here's the thing. Even if these homeowners that are not able to meet their mortgage payments decide to sell, they have to move somewhere. For every buyer, there's a seller. The vacancy rate in the U.S. right now, the rental vacancy rate, is about 6.5%. It reached an all-time high back in 2009 of 11%. But if we step back and think, okay, there is more supply coming on. Those individuals that are exiting their house because they can't make their mortgage payment potentially need to find somewhere to rent. That could drive up rental prices. All of these things, rising home prices, rising rent prices, can feed in to higher inflation. Now, houses themselves are not captured in inflation numbers because houses are an investment. They're a capital asset. And inflation measures the cost of living. But what they do measure is what's known as owner's equivalent rent. They ask homeowners what they would rent their house for. And there's a lag typically because homeowners see their home prices go up and eventually they say they're willing to rent it for more. And then there's those that are actually renting single family homes and they know what those rates are. Apartment rental rates are going up. But if we look at owner's equivalent rent over the past year, it's only increased 2.4% at a time when home prices have increased close to 20%. The rent of primary residence, that measure has only gone up 1.9% in the past year. One of the potential inflationary pressures is the rent component, which makes up a meaningful percentage of the consumer price index. So in conclusion, then, when we think about a potential crash in home prices, we would need a supply shock. We need builders to build dramatically more houses than they're currently building. Or the market needs to be flooded with more homes. There is the potential of additional homes due to the mortgage forbearance program ending, but it doesn't seem like it would be enough to push down home prices. The rate of price appreciation will more than likely slow. We would also, for a housing price crash, we would need a demand shock. That could come from a spike in interest rates, making it more difficult for individuals to qualify for a mortgage or to service those mortgages. Back during the housing bubble of 2004, 2005, 2006, one of the things that really stoked demand was it was super, super easy to get a mortgage. 
Some individuals were getting two or three mortgages without having to prove their income. There was a lot of fraud. And so if you have individuals buying two to three houses, planning on flipping them, that clearly stoked demand. That's not where we're at today. I've mentioned in the past, it took us six months to qualify for a mortgage because I'm self-employed. So spike in interest rates is a potential demand shock. But at this point, that rise in interest rates is not coming from central banks. They have been very measured about communicating even the potential to raise short-term interest rates. A jump in interest rates then would have to come from higher inflation expectations or an additional term premium, the compensation that bondholders demand for risk protection, unanticipated inflation or unanticipated actions by central banks. So that is one potential, much higher interest rates. Doesn't seem likely, but that is a risk. The supply, we do have the end of the mortgage forbearance, but builders are certainly not being over aggressive in their building. And at the end of the day, in the U.S., there's still a 3 million housing unit shortfall. And that will take years to work out. I don't see housing prices continuing to rise at 20% rate. If you're looking for a home, I wouldn't sit around waiting for a housing price crash. Hopefully, the market will slow down that if you're participating, looking for a house, it won't be this multiple bid situation where individuals are bidding $50,000 or more over the asking price. About a year ago, I did an episode, episode 317, How to Buy a Home in a Hot Housing Market. And this was at a time when LaPrill and I were trying to do that, purchase a home in Tucson after selling our house in Phoenix. And in that episode, I outlined eight rules of thumb to help you if you're looking for a house right now, such as getting a mortgage pre-approval, using an experienced realtor, knowing what you want and doing the upfront work tag teaming, bringing someone along as you look to make sure you don't overlook things, to not panic or settle, to be patient, building a margin of safety by buying one of the lower priced houses in the neighborhood, and finally to lower the stakes, to realize that a home purchase is not a life or death decision, that we can afford to be patient, to wait until it's just not such a crazy housing market. Not wait for a housing crash because it's not likely to come, but at least wait till there isn't these multiple bidding situations or there does seem to be a little more inventory, so there's a little more negotiating room in purchasing a home. Now, just like in Bombay Beach, California, real estate is local. You need to understand what are the current trends. Do you live in an area where people are migrating from let's say California to Idaho or to Arizona, where home prices are much cheaper in those two states than they are in California. So you have that migration and that puts additional demand and pricing pressure on those houses because people moving to those locales typically have more home equity and they're not as price sensitive. They're willing to pay more. Consequently, we need to be aware of the particular dynamics in your area. Is there migration into your area or are people leaving? People leaving potentially can reduce some of the home price pressure. And what is the supply dynamic in your area? 
Is it very restrictive zoning that makes it difficult to create more housing units? Or is it more of a free-for-all? So we can take these demand and supply drivers and research for our local area to see how they could impact those pricing dynamics. That then is episode 357. Thanks for listening to the episode. In addition to the free podcast, there are some additional ways I can help you with your investing. First, consider signing up for my weekly Insider's Guide email. This email not only introduces that week's podcast and links, but also includes a well-thought-out essay on money, investing, and the economy to help you become a better investor. Another way I would love to help you is if you become a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. Plus membership gets you access to portfolio-building tools, education, and a community to help strengthen your investment skills, to generate more wealth over time, because you'll be able to focus more on the critical drivers of investment returns and minimize mistakes. We'd love to have you as a member. Please sign up for the Insider's Guide and check out Money for the Rest of Us Plus at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.